The hemorrhaging woman who shows up in the middle of this story from Mark's Gospel is one of my favorite characters in Scripture because she is entirely out of place at the outset. She inserts herself into the middle of the story, reaches out and, and grabs a healing that she is convinced is rightfully hers. She is out of place for all kinds of reasons, right? She is a woman in the first century. She's suffering from an illness that makes her ritually impure. That would have put her on the margins of her society anyway. And first century healthcare was a dodgy situation at best. I mean, Mark says that she's been suffering at the hands of physicians for 12 years. And you can go ahead and put some really heavy air quotes around physicians. This is like, you know, barbers with pliers. We're not talking about surgeons with scalpels here. So it's already a risky move for her just to show up in polite company on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. It is even more daring for her to push her way into somebody else's healing story. This is supposed to be a story about a cute little girl who was raised from her sickbed by Jesus, and yet here, smack dab in the middle of this story, the woman grabs the narrative reins and makes the story all about her. It's a gutsy move. She grabs onto the hem of Jesus' robe. That's actually probably the, the fringe of his talit. That's the prayer shawl that observant Jewish men wear to this day. And that's probably what Jesus has on. That's what she grabs. She grabs the fringe of his prayer shawl. She thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And Jesus feels that, right? He feels the power go out of him when she touches him, which would not have surprised anybody who was looking on, right? In fact, they, they might well have turned on this woman and upbraided her for essentially stealing the healing power that was not rightfully hers. For a lot of people in the first century, healing was this like force that came through somebody and it was kind of like a, an iPhone battery, right? It could be drained if you used it all up. So Jesus has been asked by Jairus, who is a powerful and influential member of the synagogue, to go and heal his daughter. And that's where they're headed. So for the onlookers, right, the hemorrhaging woman has just put the little girl's life at risk by reaching out and taking the rabbi's healing power away from him so that she can use it for herself. I mean, that kind of thing could, like, get you killed in the first century. She steals a healing that is not rightfully hers. She inserts herself baldly into the middle of somebody else's story and demands her fair hearing. She's pushy, she's obnoxious, she's grabby, and she's rude. Do you see why I love this woman? <laughs> because Jesus rewards her for her chutzpah or for her desperation, right? Jesus names that faith, daughter, he says. He calls her daughter. That's a far more intimate form of address than he usually uses. Usually he says woman, but here he says daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then he goes on to Jairus' house to prove the point that God's healing is not a zero-sum game. There are not winners and losers here. There's no magical well of healing energy that can be depleted if it's used up. There is an inexhaustible flow of the Holy Spirit that pours out over everybody who asks for it and lots of people who probably don't. Twelve-year-old girls are raised up from their sick beds. Pushy women are rewarded for their faith. The Spirit of God is at work in this little village and not just for the well-behaved people in pews. The borderlands are a funny place that way. Mark is really clear about where this story happens. 
he situates this story on the border, right? That's actually how he begins the narrative. The first word of the story in Greek is once Jesus had crossed over, crossed over the border, right? He's been, he's been going all, over, all across borders. He's been going back and forth between Jewish lands, Gentile lands, all the different communities that surround the Sea of Galilee that were often like at odds with one another. He's pushing into territory that is not rightfully his by dint of religious or socioeconomic identity. Just before this story begins, he's made a lot of trouble in a Gentile town by sending a whole herd of pigs off a cliff and like ruining the economy of this little Gentile village. So, I mean, like, he's a little bit persona non grata, right? He's, in this section of, of Mark's gospel, Jesus is, like, fascinated by places he should not be. He's, like, crossing over borders left, right, and center. And, it's, and that's dangerous territory, right? This is a dangerous place for a Jewish rabbi to hang out. It's this collision land, this border territory between different cultures, different languages, different assumptions, different norms, right? That, all of that makes borderlands really dangerous places sometimes to be. We know that, right? We know what borderlands look like. It's a place where children are torn out of their parents' arms, where refugees are branded as criminals, where a nation's most cherished values are sharply tested by the way it treats the so-called outsiders. That was true 2,000 years ago. That is true today. But for Jesus, the borderland, it's not just a land of intractable conflict and political chaos. The borderlands are also a place of incredible creativity, a place where, where things unthinkable in the nice suburban villages can actually happen. The healing spirit of God is maybe a little more readily visible, maybe even more necessary in the borderland than it is in the interior. In Jesus' ministry, the borderland actually becomes the place of transformation because that's the place where stuff gets shaken up and people start like actually asking for what they need. There's a rawer kind of, of honesty in the borderlands. I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it takes for healing to happen. Maybe healing starts when we're honest with one another about what we actually think and feel and need. It's been a week, hasn't it? A week ago, I was out with many of you at Sheridan uh, at the federal penitentiary there. We were standing at the borderland, right at the fence between the park and the prison where 123 detainees are being held by ICE officials. We sang, we sang wait in the water, we sang we shall not be moved. We looked across the border, we saw flags flying from the windows of the prison. We saw a cross fashioned out of some bed linen or something like that, like people were paying attention. Communication was happening across the borderland in spite of everything that mitigates against that kind of communication and relationship in our world right now. It was powerful. The next day, I went down to Lewis and Clark College, where I've been hanging out this week with our, uh, our Royal School of Church Music singers. It's these folks that you see behind me, 80-plus singers from around the country who came here to Portland to make some incredible music together. Half of them are under the age of 18, and it has been a blast, right? On Tuesday night, three of these singers, three young women who are part of our chorister program here at Trinity, three of our girls, joined me. At our, uh, at our monthly vestry meeting of the Trinity Vestry. That is another kind of border crossing, if you like. Um, the Trinity's vestry is kind of like our board of directors. That's our elected, like the elected representatives of the congregation who take counsel on questions of finance and property and vision and policy, all that kind of stuff. And these three young women had asked for time on our vestry agenda because they wanted to talk with our vestry about an issue that is near and dear to their heart, which is the issue of gun violence. They were seeking our permission to gather signatures for a ballot measure that they hoped to put, on the or to put before voters in Oregon 
this November, Proposition 43, which would have restricted uh, access to assault rifles and high-capacity magazines. And we learned later in the week that legal challenges are going to make it impossible to meet the deadline to gather signatures that will let Oregon voters decide on the merits of this legislation. But on Tuesday, we didn't know that. And our choristers were there in front of the vestry to, to speak from their heart. Right? They, were, they were very honest with us. They talked about what it's like to go to school every day aware that this could be the day that somebody with a rifle walks into your cafeteria. They talked about what it's like to watch these things play out, to see other kids their age around the country whose lives have been utterly transformed by gun violence. They talked about the fact that they don't have the right to vote and they feel powerless, and yet they have this passionate belief about an issue that directly impacts their safety. They were well-spoken and they were articulate. These are the best of the Trinity kids that we've got. And they're no like, cockeyed optimists, right? They, our kids know that this is a community that is not of one mind when it comes to the question of gun violence and what's appropriate to do about it legislatively. They know that the mix of church and politics is a dangerous borderland in many ways, and that they're bringing themselves into a tense and highly anxious conversation here at the cathedral and around the country. But they spoke to us from the heart, not about a political issue, but about a moral issue. They reflected back to us the values that we have been trying to teach them here at Trinity, and they held us accountable to those values. And I was so, I was so impressed in one way, and in another way, they really kind of reminded me of this hemorrhaging woman in Mark's Gospel, right? Grabbing on to the cloak of an adult and demanding their fair hearing. They were honest with us about what they needed. They asked us to be their advocates. They asked us to take their concerns seriously. They reached out to us for the little bit of healing that a vestry can offer um, and engaged us at that level. And it was, it was clear in that meeting to our, to our vestry that we were being called to support these young women in whatever way we could. I don't know what that's going to look like. The campaign that they've been working on is in discernment to figure out what the next steps are going to be. Uh, so we don't know what, what that's going to look like. And I'll admit, you know, when the news came down on Thursday that the campaign was being suspended while the Attorney General and the Oregon Supreme Court deliberate about it, we weren't going to be approved to gather signatures, I'll admit, you know, this is coming on top of everything else that has happened this week. And so I'm driving back to Lewis and Clark for Evensong that night, and I'm feeling pretty, pretty depressed, frankly. Um, pretty low, pretty, you know, just kind of depressed about the state of the world. Um, I think we all feel, feel like that from time to time these days, don't we? Not just our kids, right? All of us have these moments where we feel vulnerable and afraid and on edge and anxious. It cuts across political persuasions and party affiliations. This is a, this is a nation on edge right now. I think that's because we're living kind of in a borderland space. Some of us are exhausted, some of us are terrified, some of us are trying to figure out what all the fuss is about. There are boundaries, hard and fast boundaries being drawn, left, right, and center. And there are people who have a lot invested in keeping us off balance and, and carping and fighting with one another and jumping to conclusions, right? I was, I was feeling all of that pressure on me as I'm driving down to Lewis and Clark, and I got to the chapel that evening. We settled in for Evensong. We sat there in a moment in, of, of silence. And then 43 singers under the age of 18 rose to lead us in doing what Anglicans have been doing for 500 years, what Christians have been doing for a couple thousand years, what people have faith have been doing for millennia. We sang that night Psalm 30, which is what we sang this morning. We were practicing it a little bit for Sunday. When, while I felt secure, the psalmist says, I said, I shall never be disturbed. You, Lord, made me with your favor. You made me as strong as the mountains. Then you hid your face. 
And I was filled with fear. And I cried out to you, O Lord. I pleaded with the Lord, saying, What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you or declare your faithfulness? The psalmist says, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my wailing into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Therefore, my heart sings to you without ceasing. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. I mean, if that doesn't pull you out of the gunk and give you a different sense of what is possible, I don't know what will. We sang, we prayed, we used our voices to create beauty, to foster healing in a world that is freaking out all around us. I mean, I'd, I had just witnessed a couple of these singers, our, our three young choristers, lifting their voices in a different way to call adults to a deeper engagement on issues that matter to them. There's clarity of purpose. There's a decisive vision for the kind of America that these young women want to live in. And that doesn't stop with ending gun violence. There's a, a freshness and a, and a sweetness to the world that these young women and men are calling us into, inviting us, inviting us into. And here's the thing, I have never, I've never been more proud of our kids than when I got to see these young women stand up in a vestry meeting and tell us what was on their heart and then turn around and lead me in prayer. And when I see the poise and the passion of these young leaders, I just don't have all that much patience anymore for the hand-wringing and the anxiety adults who are freaking out about the state of our world right now. I mean, if you're, if you're depressed about what's happening around you, if you're convinced that America is going to hell in a handbasket, if you can't imagine how everything got this bad, my friends, I invite you to spend some time hanging around with young women and men like these individuals who are behind me. This is not a rose-tinted glasses thing. I'm not a cockeyed optimist. I know that things feel particularly tense right now. I think that's because we're on this borderland. The borderland is the place where Jesus hangs out. It's the place where the healing happens. It's the place where old canards get tossed out and seemingly intractable challenges are cut through like butter. It's a place of creativity. It's a place of transformation. It's a place of honesty where we're asked to really engage one another, to actually learn how to listen to one another. Borderlands are holy ground. Our people have known that for thousands of years. The healing spirit of God is at work in territory like that in a mighty way. I hear it in the voice of these kids. They are, they're catching on to something that maybe the rest of us used to know, but we've forgotten somewhere along the line, that in spite of all of the darkness that threatens to overtake us, despair is just not an option. Despair is a function of privilege. And the ones among us who can't vote don't have the privilege of despair right now. They are my light in the darkness. These ones who are poised, I think, to lead us through this border crossing with grace and beauty and wit and wisdom. Because there is healing available to us as individuals, as a nation, and it doesn't happen just once we get over the border and into safety. The healing happens in the middle, right? In between that space of what has been and what is just coming into being. That's where the healing happens, not once everything is all sorted and solved. We're in the thick of it right now. But boy, howdy, there are some incredible voices in our midst. And when I hear these voices sing, which I have gotten to do a lot of this week, when I hear them sing, I think those are the voices that I want to pay attention to. 
Those are the ones I want to watch because they're on to something. That's my sermon for you this morning. That's the best I have to offer you today. With voices like this in our midst, I don't think we have the luxury of settling for despair because the Spirit is here. It's healing in our midst, and there is work for us to do. These guys are going to show us how it gets done.